Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Phil Brewster. This episode features Bill Chen. It is about three and a half or four weeks old, but things haven't moved very much. Rates have come down, but the REIT sector hasn't moved all that much. Bill stops by to discuss his take on what's going on with REITs and why they may be an attractive opportunity. This was recorded on a telephone and actually via spaces, but we both had to be on a phone in order to have spaces work. Twitter, I suppose it's now X, but it will always be Twitter to me. Anyway, I digress. I hope you all have a happy Thanksgiving and please enjoy the show. All right, so, Bill, you have spoken to me in the past and sent me something in my inbox about how attractive REITs are right now, and then I felt like a jilted lover as you went to Andrew Walker before uh, me, but it's okay. I'll get over it. And oh, I apologize for that. It's okay. I like Andrew and understand how it goes, but that's why we kind of delayed this conversation. So do you want to take a step back for anybody that didn't listen to your pod with Andrew and talk a little bit about what you see right now as the opportunity set in REITs? Yeah, absolutely. So in general, what's really attractive about the REIT space right now is that this is probably outside of a brief moment on COVID and outside of the GFC this is probably as good of an opportunity set as it is probably going back to early 2000s. I've been in the real estate space on the public side, probably started tracking the public side since court like in that 06, 07 time frame when I started working at Citigroup. But I've been on the private side with my family probably as early as a late 90s, even as a teenager, helping my family invest in real estate. So I have lots of memories of how much you could buy in a residential building for, what the implied cap rate was, what the yield was, whether you could get 15-year amortization or 30-year amortization. I have lots of memories going back to the late 90s. And this is right now in the public space outside of the, the GFC and outside maybe brief moment on COVID. This is probably the best opportunity set to buy REITs right now. Okay. That strikes me as shocking given what's going on with rates generally. So, you know, it it seems to me that if I were to craft sort of a a bear case on on why REITs may not be a great investment, I would say, well, what, the 10-year has gone parabolic, although it looks Mm. like it's coming off a little bit lately since Mm. it touched five you know don't you have a bunch of supply that's about to come on the market Mm. and can't i get maybe a similar yield in something like or or even a, a juicier yield in something like private credit right like it's competing for dollars so why is this asset space that attractive relative to the others sure i think from the big picture 
I think a lot of investors, there, there actually are choices today. For a really long time, you could only get 1% in a 10-year. And today, you could get, as of this morning, 4.6% yield. It was five just a couple, maybe one or two weeks ago. And so naturally, one of the questions that investors should ask is, and let's focus the conversation on multifamily, right? Because that's the asset class that I track the closest, and that's the asset class that I have the most familiarity with. And you could get a 4.6% yield in the 10-year, but everybody understands that the 10-year, a a normal 10-year treasury, not the tips, offers no inflation protection. It's got incredible credit protection. The U.S. government is not going to default. That's generally, they could just print more money and pay you back. But the problem is you don't have any inflation protection. You wind up with your coupons are fixed. And in year 10, you get $1,000 back. You get your principal back. And I think we could all agree that in 10 years, the purchasing power of what you pay for that 10-year treasury is not going to purchase as much, even using a 2% inflation. So it eats away your purchasing power. Now, if you buy multifamilies today, the yield is something like a mid-America or a Camden. Those are the two that we've been paying most attention to. But even something like Avon Bay, you could generally get yields that are in the, I don't know what it is today, maybe 4.2 to 4.5. But the trick is that they don't pay out everything. The, the payout ratio is very low. And this is a payout ratio on the free cash flow, not on the funds from operation. We also uh, kind of estimate what it would cost to maintain. On a, we also assign a maintenance capex figure. And after paying for all interest expense, all corporate expenses, and also all maintenance capex, they're only paying now about two-thirds, right? So really, you're getting a yield that is probably closer to 7% today, a free cash flow. It's just that they're only giving you two-thirds of it. They're only giving you, you know, somewhere in the high 60s percent of that free cash flow. So you're actually right off the bat versus a... 10 year that yields for six as of this this moment, you're actually getting 7% free cash flow yield somewhere in that neighborhood. And then there's the other question of there is inflation protection when you own hard assets. Uh, now, I'll be very honest that the Sunbelt does have supply coming onto the market in 24 and 25. And the you could even see it in the rent in some of the new leases that they, they signed. They, uh, that is starting to trend a little bit negative. And as a real estate investor, you accept the fact there are cycles, right? But there's no terminal risk with these assets, right? Like generally in the long run over a 10-year time period or even five-year time period, you expect multifamily to be uh, to either raise rents at or above inflation rate. So when you actually factors in the inflation rate, these large REITs become way more attractive than 10-year because you're starting at a 7% free cash flow yield. And these REITs only have 20, uh, 20% loan to value, the, the, the couple that I have in mind. So you start at 7 versus 4.6, and you add inflation protection. Now, What's fair is that you need some sort of credit spread, right? Because you're talking about multifamily 
risk profile versus the U.S. government risk profile, let's say that you slap on a 200, even 300 bips spread from 460 to 7, essentially you buy, so you adjust it for the credit premium, but you wind up with the inflation protection for free. So either way, however you slice it and dice it, you wind up with a superior return, in my opinion. And there's also another way of looking at it, which is you could go back and look at the relationship of 10-year yield versus the cap rate. Cap rates generally trade at, if I recall correctly, call like 100 bips to maybe at the peak 200 bips spread over multifamily cap rates, 100 to 200 bips spread over 10 years. So that would naturally imply a, call it like a 4.6 plus on the high end 200. You know, you're still at six, the current yield. It's these yields, these numbers. Hey, I'm sorry. Can I ask you to back up? I'm sorry. I got a call and and it went out. So you said you're basically, you said 200 basis points above 4.6. So you're basically at 6.6 and then I got cut off. So then what did you say? Sorry. You could buy these large cap Sunbelt multifamily REITs at call it 75 to 8% cap rate today. So there's still a huge, it's still like a very large spread over what the price is. Now, if you use the lower end of that spread, which is 100 bips, the right price is actually called like 5.6% cap rate. And what's funny is that if you look at what transactions are occurring at right now, they're still in a low five to mid five range. So that 10 year plus 100 bips actually is where the private market is at today. And you could go out and buy the public's ad at a closer to a seven and a half to a eight cap for the sub belts. So there's, there's a lot just from, I mean, these things intuitively make a lot of sense to me because I've been tracking this space for 20 years. But I understand that if you're not familiar with real estate, it may not seem intuitive to the average investor why a a cap is a screaming buy. I saw what it was EQR just sold something in the mid fives and then bought something else in the mid fives. Is that, Mm. I think that just happened. Yeah. I think Avon Bay, I think our hunter had a nice little spreadsheet and everything. I think there was about $700 million of transactions between all the big REITs and essentially everything is in the low to mid fives. So we, we're not seeing anything with a six handle. Hmm. What's the concern here? The concern here is you're coming off a period of maybe unsustainable rent growth combined with supply coming on the market? Is that kind of what, and then whatever macro concerns you want to have overlaid on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of the joke is why do prices go down? It's there are more sellers and buyers, right? So, but I think that my suspicion is that no one in the public markets, and this is probably why private equity has such appeal to allocators, is that one, no one really want to stand in front of owning public equities when you know in 24 and 25, there, there's more than normal, large amount of delivery coming into the market. But if you look at the data, it's very clear that in 2026, a lot of that delivery is going to drop off. And there's 
maybe at this point, maybe 10 to 30% of a normal amount of delivery in 26. So the supply is really going to correct itself in 26. But I mean, we've all been investing for a while. We all understand the market usually can't look out, right? The market can't look out past 20, past 25, right? It's what, what are you going to do next quarter? What are you going to do next year? And people feel like it's debt money, then they're not as willing to uh, invest in it. And I even wrote the other day that there's definitely a lot of irony in turning the asset class that's known for generational ownership and making it instantly liquid, right? Because mm. then the objective is not necessarily to do, run the DCF and try to figure out what is the IR, what is the return owning an asset over five, 10 years. The game kind of becomes what will the next shareholder do? It's kind of guessing what the other shareholders will do. And, and I think that's what's happening right now. And I think recently from the summer till now, you just have this recent surge in the 10 year yield from three, five to, to 5%. So I, I think that's a combination of recent 10-year yield spiking. I think it's a concern of the supply coming down. You're, you're clearly seeing the rent flat go flatten and then start to fall, right? Now, a natural question could be, how much could rent fall? Could rent fall 15 20%? So give a little context. When COVID happened in New York City, when you literally could not live, in dense areas, not because of macro, because of diseases, New York City rent fell about 20% peak to trough. So that's one data point. And that was probably worse than the GFC. And then when the GFC actually happened in the Sunbelt, Mid-America and Camden, their NOI only dropped by 5% when the U.S. unemployment went from 4.5% to 10%. So multifamily rent do fall. But they don't fall like a consumer cyclical, right? These REITs have close to 60% EBITDA margin. They maintain their occupancy generally in the mid-90s. And maybe they lose 2% of occupancy during a, you know, a bad macro. And they don't, these, the, the net operating income of these REITs, particularly on the multifamily side, don't really drop that much. And we rather buy these REITs at an 8% cap rate where maybe it, it turns into a 7, 6, 7, 5. Then what was really silly was in 2021, people were buying these multifamily REITs at a 3.5% cap rate when rent was grown 15%. But you still got to grow a lot, right? If you, if you buy an asset at 3.5% cap rate and rent's growing 10, 15%, to get to a 5% yield, you need a lot of rent growth. But we as value investors, I would rather buy at an 8% cap rate than the other direction. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out. I, it just seems to me, like, is there any worry that uh, an, an outsized amount of people are going to start having kids and are going to move into single-family homes? I know that's crazy to say with mortgage rates at 8 and no one's moving anyway, but I'm just trying to figure out what's going on here because optically what you're saying makes sense, right? Are You're probably buying pretty close to replacement value or below at this point, I would think. We're buying, we're buying below. We're buying below because okay. you could— 
Yeah, we're, we're buying below replacement costs. So uh, as long as it's worth replacing, you've got some asset value there. I'm looking like I've got MAA pulled up here. Like mm-hmm. your, your top markets are Austin, which I guess is arguably being overbuilt, right? Atlanta, mm-hmm. Charlotte, Raleigh, Dallas, Orlando, and Tampa. And those and Phoenix, those are like reasonably desirable markets, I would think. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's it's a matter of how much supply is going to come on, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what I perceive your argument to be and correct me if i'm wrong is if rates stay here and the cap mm-hmm. rates stay here then in 2016 or 20 yes whatever we're in the 2020 sorry yeah yep. i can't rewind though sometimes it would be nice so in 2026 you're just going to have kind of a wall where development maybe doesn't stop that might be a little hyperbolic but really slows substantially yeah. So on your question about people moving, so a lot of these big REITs share data on how, what the percentage of people moving now to, because there's a natural amount of turnover in the rental, in the renter base of people who bought a house and moved out. And you're exactly right. With mortgage, 30-year mortgages at 8%, this is the lowest that they have seen people move out from these apartment buildings to single-family homes. And I believe those numbers are hovering around 10%. They were, might've been in the mid teens in the past. And there's there's a little bit dynamic of if rates do come down, these REITs, let's say the 30 year comes down to something more reasonable at 5%. The reality is that these, when that does happen, these REITs will not trade at 8% cap rate, whether like we're in a, bad leasing environment or not. These these instruments are fairly interest rate sensitive. So any sorts of any kind of interest rate environment that that actually allows new supply to be built or allows for people to be able to afford homes. You should be, theoretically get some multiple expansion during that. Yeah, I am very, I am very confident that this is an asset class I've been tracking for a really long time. And it, it is, you know, you have to look at it through the lens of bond yields, right? Uh, you, you have, and and you see it when interest rates are very, very low. People justify owning these assets uh, because they could they could get they couldn't get anything in 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 treasuries and other fixed income instruments. And I could tell you my portfolio on days when the ten year rises ten bips. And when days when ten year falls ten dips, like my portfolio goes in the opposite direction. It makes sense when you think about. I'm just thinking of like things that I've read and heard over the years of like how expensive it is to what I've experienced. What how expensive it is to build a home, and it just mm-hmm. seems to. It, I grew up in a household that sort of favored single family homes. And the narrative that I grew up with was like, you just got to watch out for deliveries and multifamily because it can overshoot on a supply side in a big way. But to your point, you could, I was looking at a camping world today and take a look at their units. Then I was looking at Malibu's down, like anything that requires, and this is not a genius thought, but anything that requires some sort of loan and is a large purchase. The volumes yep. are just coming to stop. Yep. Yeah, you there? 
Yeah. No, I think we might have lost you. Really? That's a shame. Hello? Bill? Yeah. Am I not Hello? here? I might have lost you. That might have been on my end. I think oh. my internet might have cut out for a second. You were saying about Melibu and... Yeah, man. Just Melibu. anything that's a consumer discretionary durable, like volumes are dropping, right? And like the idea yeah. that... It's, so I guess where my mind is going is right now, supply is being delivered. But if you mm -hmm. think forward in a capital cycle, the probability that a whole lot of incremental units hit the market, to your point, after 26. Mm -hmm. Like, if I think 26 to 30, four years, yeah. maybe we get overbuilt here in the next two years, but keep mm -hmm. rates here and tell me what it looks like in 2030. Mm -hmm. I, I, hard to think you're not going to hit a, a tight patch. Now, that said, living through a 50% mm -hmm. drawdown, which it seems like happens... It's not fun, mm -hmm. <laughs> but a lot of that drawdown's already occurred. What did you say that it's down? The read index is down like thirty-five percent. Is that what I read? You wrote? Uh, yeah, it probably is down closer to forty. Not on the total return basis, but on the price basis. Yeah, and that might have come back a little bit in the past few days. But I'm pretty sure because we track that pretty closely. And from the late 2021 peak till now the the FTSE NARI or equity, which excludes the mortgage REITs, that's down, I think at one point, about 40% uh, peak to trough. And if you look at historically going back to the 1970s, the forward returns, what, if you started buying at a 30% drawdown, not buying today, which is probably 37, 38, the forward returns for the next five years average about 109%, right? So now we're buying at, a, today we're starting at even a better starting point. But going back to, I, I want to address- You are coming off peak, of, just to play devil's yeah. advocate. You're coming off yeah, of like yeah. the everything bubble, but- well, I'm, I'm only the, saying uh, that to say it. I don't know that I. Yeah, no. The only exception is the only time where the forward returns were kind of somewhat muted was in 0809, right? If you buying that for a 30 percent drop off, because the index went down 70 peak to trough in 0809, and so if you buy that 30 percent sell off, um, something. You still have some pain, and your five-year forward, I think, was like 45 or 50%, if I remember correctly. So you still made money, but you had a lot more pain going forward. Now, I could opine on like whether this is a GFC. I lived through the GFC. I was at City doing real estate investment banking during that time period. So I was very close to the GFC. I was tracking housing very closely. Just someone who was interested as a private individual and i talk about that but i, yeah. I don't want to go why, why don't we, i don't this isn't the gfc but yeah at, at least not yet we'll see if we have a sovereign problem <laughs> here and not too long but what is what did you learn in your time at city what did you see going up into the gfc that that maybe did or did not exist through this call it i don't know 2018 to 2021 yeah, so what was very unique uh, going into the GFC was this whole ecosystem around housing where kind of a lot of this behavior that you saw in 2021 when interest rates became really cheap and people will buy bankrupt companies because, well, they went up, right? That, so you saw a lot of those type of behavior 
in the housing market this is a great example i was working out at a gym and this has got to be like 2005 and there was like one big meathead who turned around to another big meathead and says i bought a house last week and i flip it for forty thousand dollar profit the other meathead goes how does that work and the first guy goes well i don't know it just does and i'm gonna keep doing it right like i'm like oh boy we're, we're, we're in trouble and i think it's one thing when you flip rock JPEGs for a million dollars or speculate in bankrupt companies and it goes up, but it's another when you get the banks involved, right? Yeah. And I remember when you, anyone could have went to the bank and just lie on your income and say, I make $150,000 and the bank will give you a loan. And there was this issue where no one in that entire ecosystem cared, right? The brokers didn't care. The people who were speculating were, were they just wanted to own as many houses, flip as many houses as they can. The, the investment banks didn't care because they were making so much money packaging and selling these. And Chuck Prince of City famously said, the music is on, we got to keep dancing something to that nature. And no one thought about what happened when the music stopped. And I think everyone in that entire ecosystem was were guilty, right? You know, fast forward to today, um, you know, bought a building in 2008 and I had a six and a quarter mortgage. And then I went on to run a uh, partnership in 2013 and I couldn't refi my rates lower because it became so difficult post the GFC to qualify for a mortgage. It wasn't until 2019 that I was able to qualify, <laughs> you know, uh, as a fund manager to refi. And I was, you know, the process uh, of going through and getting a mortgage is essentially the same as getting colonoscopy. It was painful. And one of the best things that I did in my personal finance was in 2019, I did a cash out refi. And then I use that as a down payment to buy the beach house where I work out of right now. Uh, and I have two assets locked in at 30 years with uh, 3.5% um, and 3.15% uh, interest rate. And, you know, kind of like a lot of other Americans, yes, interest rates are higher, but it doesn't impact us because our rates are locked in. And I think the, at least from the single family rental perspective, a lot of banks are in much, much better shape. Another thing that was super, that was different than than the GFC was how there were two other things. One was the leverage ratio. If you look at the Bear Stearns and Lehman's, they were up to 30 times lever, right? So you only needed a 3% impairment in the assets for the banks to be insolvent. I don't track the banks very closely, but my the generally the, the equity, the capitals are usually double digit, low double digits is generally where I think they're at. And I feel confident that their single family home portfolio is in good shape because the underwriting was so tough. There's, I think there are, and as far as I know, there's none of these really dumb buying CDS from one bank to hedge another, like Goldman Sachs buying CDS from AIG and then everybody's all intertwined, right? I think the bank regulations did a good job of making sure that if the banks fail, they fail as silos, they don't fail as a system. So I do have, this is something that I do have a rather strong opinion that we're probably not going into a GFC scenario. I think there will be banks that go down, but those will likely be 
individual silo. And then I think that, so that's, um, um, I could change my mind, but until I start seeing evidence, I'm willing to stick my neck out and make that claim. Yeah. You know, it's interesting is as you were talking, I was just thinking about all the corporate debt that was issued and John McLean was on the pod. I think it was like last December. And he and I were talking about what an opportunity it could be for these corporates to retire debt if, as rates went up. And mm-hmm. it would be interesting if corporate America just shorted, maybe inadvertently, right? But if, if they shorted debt at the right time, that'd be a beautiful outcome on behalf of corporate America that would probably oh. drive, drive some people really nuts. And I would get enjoyment out of that. That would make me chuckle a little bit. <laughs> Well, Tony mentioned that. I think I've tweeted a few times the Apple 2060 bonds that they issued at below 1%, right? Those trade at 50 cents on a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need to retire it, but some of these other companies, they could use to retire that debt. And shit, if it's 50 yeah. cents on the dollar, why not? Then whatever. Yeah. Um, I guess as the banks go, some would say that commercial real estate could be a problem, but we'll see how that all ends up over time. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, right? Let's talk about that a little bit. I think people throw the word commercial real estate around, right? And I have a little bit more of a nuanced take to it. We just went through all the multifamilies. Now, I think there is... So so let me take a step back. When, when pe- people tend to throw commercial real estate all into one big category, right? But when you start diving into it- Office, actually, oh, office is the it, real concern, okay. right? Yes, office, and and I think particularly office, and then you also have to define what type of office and how much of a lease term and the credit of the tenant, right? If you look at someone like a Vornado, which we own some prefers in, um, you know, their, their tenants are sitting down, right? The tenants are sitting down, Facebook, a bunch of these tech companies, NYU Langone, right? And, and I think their average maturity is like nine and a half years in New York City. So with that credit profile and that weighted average lease duration, you, they're not at the risk of defaulting, right? And then you could have someone who owns Mitblock class B and C, where it's an older building, very large floor plate with no windows on the two sides. Yeah, those are like, I kind of joke on Twitter that those are like candidates for mushroom farming, right? Because <laughs> it's very hard to, it's, it's very hard to, to lease those spaces as office. And it's also very hard to redevelop them as potential multifamily. So if you're the lender on that, I've seen lenders take 50% haircuts on, on office uh, loans. And if you think about from an asset value perspective, that basically means a $100 million building that's taking 75% impairment for the, for the loans to be cut in half. So yeah, like class B, class C office with very large floor plates that cannot be converted. Yeah, those are in trouble. If you look at in the suburbs, some of these offices are even starting to trade at on a per acre basis because what people are going to do is they're going to knock it down. So the square footage of the office doesn't matter as much because they're going to knock it down anyway. And and people are more thinking along the way of, well, how many acres do you have and what can I redevelop it? And these were not preferreds. They yield nine. Yes. How do you get screwed here? 
Well, we ask that question quite a bit. I think that you get screwed if they go through the, I think you get screwed if one, they go through the negotiation with the lenders on some of these debt that are coming to you and they decide to save every single building and they put more money into it. And I think that winds up reducing your marginal safety that you have. But if they negotiate those correctly, which I think they will, because Stephen Roth owns a lot of the common, and he's going to use strategic default, right, with the lenders to negotiate. I think as long as he follows uh, through on the best business decision on the lender negotiation on these individual buildings, I think the prefers are going to be in good shape. Now, the other side, anytime you own the Vornado Prefer, anytime you own any sort of Prefer in any sort of REIT, you have to think about that the preferreds are kind of set up to, to be abused by the common. You have to go in with that kind of mentality, right? Otherwise, you're setting yourself up to actually be abused. How so? Well, a lot of times the preferreds don't have a ton of protection. Yeah. And in, when rates were very, very low, they took away essentially all the protection, right? They yeah. don't accumulate. They don't well, compound. Bonds, they don't, yeah. bonds didn't exactly get a ton of covenants during that time either. But yes, I yes, yes. don't disagree it's with you. part of the capital cycle. But I would argue that because Stephen Roth owns a lot of common and because at some point he actually wants to be to make distribution on the common, that the desire to actually... Uh, make distribution on the common when things, when he feels like the, the REIT is in good shape, that is actually your best protection. I think where a lot of uh, REIT preferred investors get into trouble is when they get themselves in a situation where things are looking really bad and there really isn't any cash flow to make distribution to the common. When you buy those thinking, well, in a liquidation I'm, I'm ahead of the common uh when there's just like no chance of any distribution to the common i think that's where all sorts of shenanigans happen so your best protection is actually the commons want distribution on uh, in the future the commons will turn off uh, as of this moment and but they i think they're looking to repair use that excess cash flow to make some uh, repairs. Vornado preferrers could get really, really complicated. And that in itself is probably a, like a two hour conversation. Like if we draw up the diagram on where the unencumbered assets, the non-recourse individual silo assets, the New York City Fifth Avenue retail joint venture, like that could get really, really complex. And, and maybe I'll do like a tweet on it one day with all the different diagrams, but that's fairly complex. But what I was saying is if you go through all the commercial real estate asset classes, generally rent is starting to soften, arguments are starting to soften, but most of the self-storage, most of the warehouses, there's a lot of the strip malls, the grocery anchor shopping centers, a lot of them are in decent shape. Now, I think that there are certain vintages that are more problematic than others, right? Like if you take the 2021 20, vintages and you look at what people pay and the kind of like the structure, the bridge loans that you use, the floating rate bridge loans, a lot of those are problematic. But outside of kind of class B and C office and maybe even class B and C of the 
indoor malls. And then there's like a valuation issue in certain vintages in 21. I think like anything that you bought with like a low force cap rate in 21 with floating rate debt, those are problematic. But outside of those, I think the rest of the mouth are, are actually in reasonable shape hmm. from a lender perspective. Yeah, which is what we're concerned about for the GFC similarity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huh. All right, well, mm-hmm. I may call you offline about these for not a preferred. Okay, so here's going back to the multifamily read thing. Yeah. One, one thing that I sometimes struggle with because I have an interest in a private group that does value add in apartments. And mm. thankfully our mark went up last year. So I'm sure that's real. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I do quite like them a lot. Actually, I'm very happy with, with what they've done. But the units do require refacings and an element of the portfolio seems to often be chewing up capital in some might call it growth capex but i'm gonna say it's closer to maintenance so how Mm. does your revenue growth offset the need for incremental dollars in reinvestment so said differently like how do you grow real free cash flow in these things Sure. Can I ask, what is the age general condition of these buildings? You could ask. I wouldn't have the right answer. But basically, Mm -hmm. I think that they probably, on average, were developed between like 1990 and 1997. And somebody Mm -hmm. milked the cash flow. And maybe they flipped it once. The strategy that this group uses is they purchase the building And then they'll do things like reinvest in the common areas. A lot of the common areas have a sales staff that's in the back. They move them up front. They'll reinvest in the, I'm going to call it an atrium. I don't know if that's what it's actually called, right? But we put like pool tables in and create not like a business center, but like an area that people can have coffee. And then Mm -hmm. you enhance the common areas put uh, lipstick on the units and then you bump the rents accordingly mm-hmm. is the model. And then the guy that started it is one of these guys that like put himself through college managing mm-hmm. units. So they're like quite efficient in their operations, which is mm-hmm. why I got involved with them. I like to partner with operators more than financial yeah. types. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and I think the, and, and that's really important. And this is where I kind of mentioned about <clears throat> going back and having the experience on the private side, because sometimes you could just start slapping cap rates. For some reason, your volume went down. Are okay. you okay? I'm okay. I put in a new set of AirPods. Oh. Because I'm the pre- how, how is it now? That's fine. I can hear the difference, though. You can hear the difference? Okay. Yeah. Huh. All right, this new sets of AirPods must have been... I have an adept ear. (laughs) That's why you got the voice for broadcasting and I don't, right? Yeah, a face for it too, so... A face for it. So this is where I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand it. A lot of the big public REITs generally own portfolios of assets that are newer and higher quality than what you could buy in the private markets. Now, there, there are some assets owned by private owners that are truly trophy class A, right? 
But even if you look at something like a Mid-America actually has a little bit of the, the average age is about 17 years old, 23. So those are usually, the stuff that you described is, was built in the 90s. The average age in the Mid-America portfolio is probably a little like 10, 15 years younger than the assets that you own, right? You can find a lot of these stats, I'm sure like Camden's a little bit younger, and the stuff that's owned by FRP Holdings, which is my favorite rock quarry plus DC multifamily building, the average age may be, may be like three or four years old, right? So so that's one thing. And there's a big bifurcation between what the REITs own. And they tend to recycle their capital. They tend to, you'll see them just dispose of an asset that's a little bit older. And then they'll either develop uh, one that's newer or buy something that's a little of newer and hopefully make um, cap rate neutral trades, right? Now, some of the really smart GPs in Twitter may have a different opinion on that, whether they're really making cap rate neutral trades or not. But generally, there is a program to keep recycling them and so that they do own newer buildings over time. Hmm. Uh, and also just like their own development program, you wind up with newer buildings, right? Development is not a big part of their overall business. But they do have a certain percentage of their buildings that they do develop themselves. So there's just like the, what you just explained and what the average age is for a lot of these public REITs. And, and REITs in general are older. There is a REIT called Next Point Residential that runs a strategy very similar to what you do. And also want to address, it, it just seems like there's always something broken. You need the CapEx. Now, what we do and uh, what we said earlier is we do budget a maintenance CapEx and we generally use about $1,000 a door for these large public REITs. So it's $1,000 and something like MedMarket, we're using $100 million as maintenance um, CapEx. And depending on who you ask, I pay a lot of attention to a lot of what the real estate GPs talk about and they share a lot of this data. I think that's generally fairly conservative. As far as the REITs that we're looking, looking at, I do think that they're generally, we've adequately accounted for what the maintenance CapEx is. If anyone out here hear this and say that, hey, this is outrageous, it needs to be a lot higher than that, please DM me and love to hear your opinion. But even if you make it more than that, these REITs are still trading at a very attractive free cash flow. To what you were saying about are these maintenance, are these growth? I had a really interesting conversation with the CEO of a couple of the REITs, and one of them in particular said something that was smart. And he was saying that generally you want to go in and buy a value add strategy where the value add is in the kitchen units. It's in the kitchen unit, it's in the interior, the paint, right? So you give people a reason to want to pay $200 more, right? Yeah. You make improvements to the roof, like no one cares. You can't raise rent. Like, yes, you, like, this is what we do. We invest in the yeah. pool, we give them yeah. a common area that they like, and then yeah. we make we make the interior nice, and then you yeah. serve them well, and then you can yeah. bump rents. Yep. Yep. So when you do those things and there's the real estate GPs will probably have better opinions on. Sometimes I feel like I'm just a dumb public equity guy because I don't fully get into the nitty gritty details. Right. And I'm kind of, Hey, 8% cap rate is cheap. Right. There's a lot of margin safety in that. But some of the guys in the weeds, 
they'll be able to tell you, hey, maybe the pool, what I hear from like new Lisa is the pools seal the deal, but people don't actually use it that much. You know, the door grooming, right? Like the door washing station yeah. basement is actually what people use like, yeah. all the time, right? And yeah. people will literally leave your building if you don't have it. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, funny. You could, I remember when yeah. the first one that I saw went in, I was like, this is, I mean, I get it, but it feels silly, but turns out it's necessary. Yeah. What I've learned over the years is don't question, like if people are using something, don't question why it's silly, right? I get it. You don't want your dog to smell like shit in your apartment and there's nowhere to like really actually wash one. I do it. Will you do me a favor? Will you try to put yourself on speaker instead of on your AirPods? Yeah, sure. Let me, uh, hold on. Let's see. Is it just that much worse right now? It didn't get better. I mean, it, yeah, it was. Okay. Okay. That means I don't even put myself on speaker on this. There, now you uh, sound good. Now I sound good? Okay. Yeah. All right. Was it because I was just like, I'll try to speak louder. Is speaking louder help or now? I don't know. I'm getting a little static, yeah. but. You're getting a little static? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Hold on. Let me take off the AirPods and just uh, try speaking into it. Yeah. Got some technical difficulties. Duh. Now you're not. Now you're muted. Mm. Pink polo shorts tell me not to have any pools. So much for that. All right. Well, Bill, I don't know where you went. You've muted yourself. That's not helpful. Hey. Hey, there I'm you are. The, there you I'm are. Back with the original AirPod. Is, now you sound good. Hurt? Yeah, this is beautiful. Oh, now you're in be. my ear, as you should All be. Right. <laughs> it's All gotta right. be this. Character. Well, I would trust pink polo short. This is where. The skills, right? And I joke with myself that I'm trying to become the Howard Marks of reinvesting. And one of the memos that I want to write about is that it's a different game, right? And the different game is someone like Pink Polo, who I respect a lot, and other a lot of other real estate GPs like like Moses Kagan and, and Bobby Fijian. There's a lot of people that will put me absolute to shames with like the execution, the nitty gritty details that that would just absolutely put me to shame and trash it, right? But the my skill is to wait for fat pitches like Buffett and, and Munger talk about, right? <laughs> like, like there's a certain cap rate and a certain discount to replacement costs where I'm going to make an opinion and say, I'm backing the truck up. And I think we're in one of those moments. And if Pink Polo says... The poos don't do anything. I would trust him. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I don't mean to misframe what what people are doing or not. I should have them on the pod, and they can talk about what they do. But alas, <laughs> the marks went up, so you know you can trust it. Anyway, if anybody wants to come up and, and have a little partake in this conversation, please feel free to ask some questions. Because, you know, I read the pitch, and I find it fairly compelling but I don't know what I don't know. The reason that we did this on spaces is I, w- I wanted to have a few people that might actually know the space better to ask some questions. So that's why we're here. What was the pushback that you got from just generally talking about this idea? In gen- What's been the best pushback that you've gotten? I think the best pushback, I think a lot of pushback is the, the tenure. Right, like the dividend yield is four or five, 
40 to 45 and get 5% in a 10-year treasury. That is a probably the number one pushback. And I wouldn't call it like the best fundamental pushback, but that is the most vocal pushback. The supply is another one. And if you look at the sell-side research, a lot of them are just pounding the table saying, buy coastal, don't buy the Sunbelt. Coastals don't have as much of a supply issue and, and the Sunbelt has a lot more. And I just think it's it's hilarious, right? Because at a 3.5% cap rate, in 2021, when rent was grown in the teens, people couldn't get enough of it. I understand that the cost of capital were a lot lower back then, but there is an issue that you can't go any lower in a Zerf world, right? You can't go any lower on the interest rate. And I like to buy things when, on an absolute basis, it's at a much higher cap rate that that's on par with the late 90s, early 2000s, when multifamily cap rates actually were in that kind of like 8% range, right? I prefer to buy it back then. Believe it or not, there was a time where you could buy real estate, residential real estate, and put a 15-year amortization mortgage on it and fully pay off everything in 15 years. Can you imagine that? Like we, we haven't, that's how when my family started buying real estate, that was how Typically, you buy a building, and in 15 years, you're going to own a building free and clear of any mortgage payment. You still got to pay property tax and maintenance and repair, but it wasn't, no one bought real estate with the mental model of having to perpetually refi and extend uh, the mortgage on it. That was very foreign. And now we're at a point where, where like, if you buy something at an 8% cap rate, you actually could afford to probably put like a 15, 15 year amortization mortgage on it and pay everything off free and clear. I have these valuation metrics in my head where I'm like, okay, at that kind of pricing, I'm willing to just own it, right? And so I think the 5% 10 year is a big pushback, very vocal pushback. The, on the public equity side, a lot of people being very vocal about the supply. And why would you want to know that money is a big pushback? I am looking to use the dividends as a way to create my own share buyback. And that is one of the tools. It's a different game between the private and the publics, right? Uh, Bill, your partnership, if you want it in a way, right? No one views it this way. But in a way, if you went to your GP and say, I like to... I like you to mark down your assets by 30%. And then I want to take the distribution you just sent me and I want to buy into it at like a 30% discount to what you just marked it at. Like you couldn't do that, right? Yes, but you could do correct. that. You could do that on the public side. And the public markets are either a bug or a feature. Like it either has a bug or it has a feature, depending on how you view it. And I'm going to get all. Buffety and mongerish here, but that is how I operate, right? You could either let it drive you crazy or you could take advantage of it and say, now, I think if you manage outside capital, you need an investor base who understands your strategy and who's patient, who will let you do that. And I just happen to be lucky that my LP base do feel that way. And so that's what I'm committing to. So, I mean, I went off tangents a little bit but I would say the big pushback are those two, those two main things. Now, 
I think on the, we focus on the bigger, more liquid with very low loan to value. There are more optimistic investments out there. There are REITs that are multifamily REITs that are more levered and those have gotten absolutely punished. Some of those are down 70% peak to trough versus 50 for the large caps. And I think those, there's more, there's more of a nuance to, okay, how will they roll these debts? What are they doing to delever? How are they getting in front? When is it 24? Is it 25 when they have a big chunk of maturity? Then you got to get a little more surgical. You got to get a little more technical in terms of what are they doing? How are they, how are they using, uh, what are they doing with the distribution? How are they addressing that maturity? And though you could make, if you get those right, you could, total returns could be in that 200% range in the next four or five years. If you get, if you get the analysis right on those, right? I, I think that there is some of the pushback is probably more valid on the optimistic side because the event path matters more. But on the larger, very on the larger multifamily REITs with very low loan to value, if you look at the maturity law, if you look at how they finance everything and how they ladder the maturity and the actual absolute amount of loans they have relative to their asset base, I think it's largely a non-factor. There's very little event path risk. I think that if you can't handle a drawdown, right, and like from a market perspective, if that's potentially an issue, I think that's a valid argument. But a lot of these pushbacks are rates are higher. These deserve to trade at much higher cap rates. They, you know, this is the right price. But then at the same time, like when the 10-year was at uh, 100 bips, people were also justifying that, hey, maybe buying a, uh, a multifamily at a 3.5% cap rate in the Sunbelt getting 12% rent increases is actually a really good idea. I would say that if you locked in your interest rates for 10 years, you probably would have done okay. But if you use floating rate debt, that was actually probably one of the riskiest things that you could do. Yeah. And by the way, Bill, I one of the things that you asked me earlier that I didn't get a chance to address was how to think about the supply picture post five, right? Yeah, we didn't get a chance to address it. I'll address it. Generally, what I and, and this is like the power of Twitter, right? And I want to thank you for stating this probably two, three years ago. Like you mentioned, I think on a value after hour podcast a few years ago that. One of the things that was really valuable for you was when you tweeted out, hey, I'm looking at so-and-so company, so industry, there's always a couple of people who would DM you, and that was really valuable. And that was actually what prompted me to get on Twitter. And I'm really enjoying that because I really connected with a lot of the real estate GPs. And I think the kind of the advantage that it provides me and the edge, like if you can call it is, I'm seeing a lot more real-time data of what's going on, right? Like calling out Pink Polo Shorts and Mo- Moses Kagan and, and Bobby Fijian and, and uh, there's lots and lots of people that I follow that I'm not naming right now, but I get incredible real-time data in terms of, hey, can people actually build right now? Uh, what is the financing cost? Like all of that data is real time. It's incredible. It's, a, it's incredible how powerful Twitter is. And probably starting a, 
about the Q2 or Q3 of last year, it became very, very obvious that new projects were being were not being approved. And right now, nothing is being approved. And the way to think about it is usually it takes somewhere between three to four years to bring a multifamily to the market ready to lease. You you buy the property, you get your bank financing, you lock in your GC, you start building. And so there's usually a three, four year lead time. So if you think about the delivery that's happening in 324, 25, you kind of got to take those years and minus three to four from it. So a lot of those issues were really made in 2020, 21, and 22. Yeah. And so when you start counting, when those when people started saying, hey, we can't get projects approved because the development economics isn't there anymore, we had a year and a half lag where like nothing was getting approved, right? So the longer that we're in this very restrictive lending period, and if we go into some sort of recession, it becomes even more restrictive, Right. And you could track that, right? You could track like how long we've been in this period. So we're in like this environment probably for a year and a half and counting and the clock keeps ticking on, on the, that duration of when people cannot build. So the way that my mental model is past post from 26 forward, really the next wave of supply that could potentially start is probably the middle of like 2027, right? And the longer that we're in this interest rate restrictive lending environment, the longer that time period is. And this is where I focus on the earnings power of an asset two, three years out. And then the if we keep, if we stay in this environment for another year and a half, like you could have in 26, like from 26 to 29, like three years where you could these REITs could potentially raise rent four percent a year, right? Until we hit twenty-nine. And then the animal spirits may come back and people may say, Wow, look at look at these REITs. You get by then this four and a half percent yield might have grown into five. You get a five percent yield. Maybe interest rates are lower then, right? And people say you, you buy a five percent yield, they're not even paying all of it out, and they're raising rents by four percent a year. And all of a sudden, like that, people will pay a very large premium for that. Let's look at the downside case. Let's say that these assets can trade at a 7% cap rate forever, right? And if you look at any kind of multifamily veteran on the private side, they would absolutely salivate at a 7% cap rate, regardless of what financing rates are because it trades substantially below the cost of what, what it costs to bring uh, a new asset. I mean, generally the rule of thumb is most developers develop to a 6% yield. So if you buy something at a seven, you're cutting, that four, cutting out that four year wait period and you're getting hundred bit higher yield than what you could develop an asset for, right? So most private, GPs would, would be salivating to be able to buy at a 7% cap rate today. Yeah. I, I was talking to a guy that develops, I, I don't know exactly what he develops, but I know he's at a private equity fund and they do real estate. And he was saying that he's sitting on some land right now. And for the last year, his assumption had been that rates were going down. So they were like pushing out the development timeline. 
And just the other week, he was like, I don't know if rates are going to come down. And if they don't, then I don't know what we're going to do. And it takes a while for this for... You can't just build a building overnight, right? You got to get permitting. You yeah. got to get people com- committed to showing up. You got to... So if people are now thinking about not developing, I, I have to think two to four years out, we're going to have a pocket of time where deliveries are quite a bit shorter than they have been in the recent past from a doors perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, man, And I don't know, it's all capital but... cycles, right? I kind yep. of wonder how much of this is all still related to COVID and the response to COVID. I think that's why rates are where they are and, Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. gonna take a little while. Yeah, I think that's generally the right mental model, and I think there's also a dynamic of some of the developers may not be around to develop, right? And I don't like wishing harm on anybody, but again, this goes to capital cycle theories, right? If your business model is merchant development. You rely on developments to pay your bill, and this is something I, I was at the FRP. Investor Day, and which is my favorite company in the world that owns incredible rock quarry assets and some of the best multifamily assets on the river in DC. One of the things that they mentioned that was really, really interesting was they were saying that they were at a conference and they turn around and the guy next to them says, what sucks about the, the development business? And the guy at FRP says, what? And the developer says, the burn right? The burn rate. And he goes, what's a burn rate? He goes, well, it cost me $7 million just to have the infrastructure to be able to develop. So they're not developing and they're not exiting, right? That 7%, that $7 million a year burn rate is, it really eats into their ability to exist. And FRP just happens to, they own a lot of land through legacy holdings on the river in DC they have 160, $170 million of cash from an asset sale that they, they sold some warehouses to Blackstone from a few years back. And they have existing businesses that throws off a lot of cash flow, right? So they could afford to be very counter-cyclical, right? The decision to hold $160, $170 million of cash going into like holding it through 2020, 2021, 2022, when interest rates were almost zero, that was very unpopular with the shareholder base. And that management team came out looking like geniuses today because because that cash cushion makes all the difference in this environment. Now, I could assure you that there's not a lot of merchant developer companies that are sitting on $160 million of cash as a buffer, right? Everyone's using leverage. Everyone's developing, everyone's relying on the capital markets to exit, to either refi or sell the assets at the end of the development cycle. So, I mean, realistically, there could be, I'm not wishing harm on people, but this is capital cycle. This is what happens when rates go up from a near zero bound to something that's restrictive in the 5% range for the 10 year. And I think that just if you look at the home builders and why we can't build a lot of single-family homes in this country, a lot of that labor left the industry after the GFC. And a lot of the the, uh, the big home builders 
kind of pulled back and became a lot more disciplined. Maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't. But I think there's like a lot of these dynamics where if you own the large multifamily REITs with their leverage ratios, they're anti-fragile and they're competing against merchant developers that are very fragile in this environment. And one thing that we didn't talk about is what is the optionality of what they could potentially do in the next few years? They, could, they, they still have access to the bond market. They could issue unsecured bonds. I mean, they may have to pay 6% today, but they have access to capital markets and they could pick up distressed deals when the merchant developers are like, they're sweating, right? Uh, because the construction loan now uh, costs them 10, 11%. And they need an exit to get out of their payback construction loan, just extract anything from their projects. So you're, you're buying something that's anti-fragile versus you, the competitors are in a fragile state. And, and there are some optionalities that come from that, whether it's in the form of they could pick up some distressed assets, which I looked at some of them. It's, they're probably better off buying back their own stock in today's environment. And one of, one of the REITs did mention that when they were asked. We didn't bake any of that in into our potential return streams. I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but I, I am pounding the table on these large cap multifamily REITs right now. Yeah, I, I guess that when I think about it, the retort is just if rates go much higher, but I, I don't know what that world looks like and I don't know why it would mm -hmm. happen, right? It's one thing yeah. if everybody's really, you're growing and that's why, why rates are a little bit higher than you would think that people are... They still need shelter and rent mm -hmm. should be able to go up, right? I don't know. Well, let's look at that, right? Let's say we go into a very restricted world where instead of multifamily trading at 8% cap rate, it trades at 9 right? What happens in that world? Then there's absolutely no supply, right? Like merchant developers absolutely cannot build if the exit cap rate is 8%. We've done a a simple development model, but this is also confirmed by the real estate GPs that we track. And the cap rates going from, say, exit cap rates on a new build going from four and a quarter, four and a half percent to just five to five and a quarter has rendered the development, merchant develop, development model impossible, right? Between the, just like the IRs goes from something like 20 to 23% down to somewhere in that seven, eight percent range, right? But these are rough ballparks, but you can't justify taking on ground-up development risk and only return practically 8% to your LPs, right? Now, that's yeah. assuming a five and a quarter exit cap rate, right? Imagine a nine, 8% exit cap rate. Like no one's going to build anything, right? So in a world where we're, we stay in this very elevated cap rate world, I think the only developer who could develop are these big REITs, right? Um, because they don't fully pay out all the dividends. They are paying now only two-thirds of all the dividends. And I think they become the only merchant developer going forward. And over time, as a population grows, the, 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 supply, the supply grows a lot slower than the population. And I think people will naturally view them as good hedges towards inflation, good uh, just on a real return perspective. These are good instruments. If you look at demographics in the U.S., it looks like the 20-year-old to 40-year-old 
group is the largest. So I guess in theory you could have fewer people that are going to be renters over, the, let's call it from 2030 to 2040. But can you manage a situation like that? There's going to be some homes that age out of the stock, right? And buildings. Can you explain that uh, a little more? Yeah, so what you said is you said population increases, right? And what I'm saying is if you look at sort of demographics in the U.S., Mm -hmm. this is a large hump, right? The current age group from 20 to 40 Mm -hmm. appears larger than the group from zero, obviously, but call it uh, five years old to 20 years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so if mm-hmm. you fast forward 10 years, mm-hmm. that's probably the group that's coming into and renting throughout. If we have fewer renters, mm-hmm. can you, like, will capacity come out of the market? I, I don't think that it will at the larger REITs. I'm just saying, like, on the margin, will some of the buildings age out? Or is that a long-term risk? Yeah, that's a very good question. And we've thought about that. Um, you know, one thing that do counteract that is the more of the older people are renting or becoming lifetime renters. Hmm. And, and what I mean by it is that you definitely demographically, you are seeing someone who's a single who th- didn't get married and they never buy a house. Right. So, I mean, the. Millennial is definitely the biggest age group, and the and and the Gen Zs are as as a whole is a lower population than that. So that's a hard question. That's a hard question. It's a little bit further out in the future, but we do think about that. It is a possibility. But what you have counteracting against that is that the single family home is so restrictive right now with interest rates where they are that the families are stuck renting. But then there's also the dynamic of you got just a a certain cohort where never got married and they don't need to live in a house. You also got this new phenomenon where people who are older sell their homes because they don't want to like pay for all the upkeep and they move into an apartment building. You, you see this a lot in New York City. I know we've been talking about, a lot about Sunbelt, but I would imagine that also happens because if you're 60, 70 years old, it's just easy to live in a like a class A multifamily building and people could bring in, a dormant could bring in the grocery for you. You just have more help, right? And you don't have to mow the lawn. You don't have to repair all of the stuff. You, th- there is that trend as well, where people who are of retirement age will sell their house and move to a multifamily. It's a very popular thing in New York City, where people move into the city, where they walk everywhere. I know this isn't may not be the case in the Sunbelt, but you, you have that trend as well. So that's a little bit harder of a question, but I do think about it. I try to track the data, but I think we're probably, like you said, probably 10 years out from that. Yeah, I guess it's something that you just watch over time and see how it develops. Older people moving, downsizing, and moving into apartments is interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's less service sunbelt phenomenon because you could move into a Margaritaville and play golf all day and got to go to the villages, the man. <laughs> the villages? Yeah, get your hump on. <laughs> it's the fastest, fastest. Well, was 
once upon a time, the fastest growth in STDs among a population was older people. And a lot of it was because they moved to those communities and just start sleeping mm-hmm. around. Which it, good for them. Easy. Not so much about catching a disease, but yeah. the rest of it. I mean, yeah, you don't have yeah. so many <laughs> years left. Might as well enjoy them. <laughs> One of the things that blows my mind is someone sometimes get a little bit. I definitely am aware that sometimes I live in a bubble here in New York City. Years ago, there's this company called Consolidated Tomoka, which owns uh, a lot of land in, in Daytona Beach. And I like to put boots on the ground. So I flew down there and spent a couple of days in Daytona Beach. And it's not the greatest area. Daytona? Lightly. Yeah, Daytona. Yeah, it kind of sucks. <laughs> and I bet it gets nice over time, though. That's how Florida works. Yeah. Yeah. Where I was going with this is that a lot of these houses are going for $70,000, right? And it's generally not a great area. And then they did a partnership with Margaritaville. And I'm taking like my New York mentality. I'm like, okay, like the comps are $70,000. Well, what can you sell these houses for? But Florida is very different, right? You can have a rough neighborhood. You can have a kind of rundown neighborhood on one side of the highway. But then you just go onto the other side of the highway and build these much higher price point, newer. They put in Margaritaville, and I think homes were selling for like four hundred, half a million dollars, and they were selling like hotcakes, right? Like, Florida is just a different animal. And I think that was like the first time I saw the pricing, like the brand value of Margaritaville. It, it is incredible. And, and that's also happening at St. Joe right now which is a little new to the St. Joe story, but the something about Margaritaville and the lifestyle, man, I mean, even in this 8% interest How, rate What's going on at St. Joe that rhymes with that? Oh, they have a Margaritaville oh, over there, and huh. it is just selling like hotcakes. Like people are, are paying, I think like most of the buyers, they are paying like all cash. Yeah. I should have gotten yeah. in a car and drove over to St. Joe, but from what I've seen, they've done a very good job. Yeah. Well, they make some of the best hype videos for any poetry <laughs> real estate company that St. Joe seen. does? That's kind of funny. Berkowitz <laughs> yeah, behind yeah, that. Yeah. I don't associate Berkowitz with hype videos. <laughs> Whoever in that organization. Yeah, yeah. No, he's got the right uh, people doing it. Those are phenomenal. And and sometimes I'm a little bit jealous because we own, and I, I kind of say this facetiously, but we own FRP again. Like they own this really attractive frontage down on the water in DC. And if you like take a drone, they've just built this like new bridge that looks gorgeous. And they're going to own like a big chunk of the waterfront on the Anacostia. The wharf is a really successful development project. And then the other part that has the waterfront is in on the Anacostia shower with this side, with the Washington National Baseball Stadium. And they're going to own essentially through partnerships, the entire waterfront down there. And sometimes I just wish I'm like, hey guys, like make the hype video. <laughs> like I'm here. I spent a lot of time on the ground. And it's very, very lively. It's a great area. I'm like, let's make a hype video, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And it's a rock quarry, huh? They own, I think, about 15 rock quarry locations, which I've seen in person myself. I've driven down there. 
and I've seen it all by myself. They own about 20,000 acres of land between Georgia and Florida. I know they have four locations in Georgia, and the rest are in Florida. It is probably one of the greatest business models that I've ever encountered. And what they do is they lease these locations to Vulcan and Mar Marietta, which are all publicly traded. Uh, and you can look at what the Martin Marietta and Vulcan trade at. But their business model is just far superior, right? Because they own the reserves, they own the land, but they don't have any of the operating expenses associated. They don't have any of the CapEx. They don't have to pay for any of the Caterpillar trucks that digs, digs these rocks out, right? They don't have to own any of the crusher. So they get, they never disclose what the actual royalty percentage is. I think that it's about 10%, right? They take 10% of the top line they don't have to do anything. And as inflation has been going up, they get they benefit directly from the inflation rate. And the relationship of rocks and aggregates is that they typically raise prices faster than the rate of inflation by roughly about 2%, right? And when the GFC happened, after the GFC, industry volume for aggregates were probably down about 40%. But aggregates actually raise prices after the GSC. It is the exact opposite of a commodity business, right? Commodity business is very supply-demand driven. If you have excess supply, prices go down. But the, this is a kind of business where it looks like a commodity on the surface, but in reality, they have a tremendous amount of pricing power. And the reason why they have pricing power is because you're selling a ton of rocks for $15, right? If you want a truck at 30 miles, the cost of diesel and driver is probably going to be higher than $15 uh, to, to ship that. So you absolutely have to buy local, right? You, you absolutely have to buy local. And there's usually like two players. Usually there's like Mar Marietta and Vulcan in, in an area and they're very, very rational competitors. So you got this little business. They're probably doing about $13 million of royalty income, 96% cash margin, essentially no CapEx. Occasionally, they'll make a very accretive acquisition, and they're, they're very, very savvy capital allocators. And I've tracked the uh, cash flow profile from before the GFC to after the GFC to today. It's just a phenomenal business. They got, you know, the stated reserve is about 60 years. But what happens with these rock quarries is that the further you dig down, you tend to find more rocks, right? So there's probably 100 years of reserves left on all this land. And then when you're done extracting, there's real second life value on that land because they own 20,000 acres of that, right? And there are certain locations that are more valuable than others. Like they, they own this location in Fort Meyer, uh, where when they're done, it will form this beautiful turquoise lake and you know some of those houses in fort meyer go for four or five million dollars for waterfront that are you know that are one, one acre in size right so they'll probably be able to sell that in 2027 and that's, that's, not, that's not waterfront like a lake though for four million that's like waterfront right yeah you're, you're right on the edge there's nothing blocking you that's waterfront yeah but it's a lake well, if you go on It's Zillow, not like the intercoastal. Again, I look at the transaction comps, and yeah. there are buyers who pay $5 million 
put those homes down there. <laughs> like, you know, I, I get what you're saying. You're not that, like, I am literally. Not all like, water is created equal is all I'm saying. Yes, yes. Not all water is created equal. And I, you know, live 30 seconds from the beach here in New York City. Right, and, yes. So if uh, I told you, like, uh, New York waterfront goes for this and I have a lake, yeah. you'd be like, that's not what you're talking about, right? Like, th- if you're on the river in Fort Myers, I totally get it. But okay. For some reason, these quarry lakes, because the way the water looks, hmm. people pay them. And I don't argue with the transaction comps. It, it, it is what it is, and people buy them. People like them. But uh, that's one of their assets. But I'll send you some photos. I'll send you some photos. I and mean, then some of these are, are gorgeous you know, houses, and people pay up for them. I, I talked to a local down there. I'm like, help me understand this. And he says, no, man, that people really do pay. People, I guess people get sick of the cold and they want to buy a house on a, uh, on a quarry lake with a really nice turquoise color. And they'll pay $5 million for a house like that, which like kind of blows my mind. So that's one example of the second life of those quarries. But they also own land in like right by Disney, where they own like a thousand acres of land right by Disney that I've driven through, which has a tremendous amount of redevelopment value, right? They also own something like 4,000 acres about an hour north of Tampa where they could essentially built a whole new town, right? There's nothing there right now, but there's a tremendous amount of second life optionality to this business. But like owning something that's thrown off $13 million of revenue, that's a 96% cash margin, isn't too bad either. And with the infrastructure bill in the past couple of years, they've been growing top line probably double digits in the last couple of years. And you probably have a few years of the infrastructure tailwind for, for a little while. And there's no CapEx. There's no CapEx to grow this business. Interesting. Yeah. It took me a couple years to really appreciate how good this business is, but it truly is one of the best business in the whole world. It doesn't have the growth rate of the Magnificent Seven, but given the cash margin, given how little CapEx you need for that business, like if the management team allows me to exchange my stock for interest in that aggregate business and they pay me like a distribution, I'll take like a 3% yield and I'll just sit on my ass and probably pass it down to my kids and my grandkids. Hmm. I was talking to somebody about American Tower yesterday that said basically the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was like, now, you, you can now get like what? 3.8% on American Tower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't done the work to look through the contracts and whatnot, but assuming there is some inflation protection in those and assuming that the rents go somewhere correlated with data usage over wireless, I don't know, the probability that you make less than 3.6% in the future, I think is fairly low. And the probability that in 10 years you make more than 5% is fairly high and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that can make sense. Maybe. Yeah. No, I actually tweeted out the other day. You're not going like, to get hey, super rich owning it, I don't think, right? But <laughs> probably stay rich. Well, that's that's a funny thing about these multifamily REITs, right? A lot, I think a lot of people say, well, if REITs stay here, like, I don't really see you making, like, these heroic returns, right? 
And a lot of my best investments start out with those kind of pushback, right? They're like, yeah, I don't see a lot of downside risk, but what's like the upside scenario, right? And I don't know, like maybe in the next 10 years, you own these assets for 10 years. And at some point, interest rates do drop, which is like kind of very hard to imagine right now. But at some point, rates do drop below where, where they are. And they, they've been, these cash flow have been growing. And then you get like a nice re-rate. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's three years out, maybe it's five years out, maybe it's seven years out. But if you can underwrite to the base case of somewhere in the high single digits IR, using like today's interest rate assumptions and growth rate assumption, and then at some point rates go lower, like those are like pretty good setups, right? And I tend to look at a lot of these hard assets through a NIMBY angle and re, uh, sometimes replacement costs. And there's a lot of debate on like where the replacement cost is actually valid, a valid approach to valuing something or not. And I think the simple answer is replacement cost is very valid when your asset isn't facing terminal risk, right? People still want to live in apartments. People still need these cell towers. And I think that if you think about recreating this tower network, and I'm not a tower specialist, right? It's always been too expensive for me to look at until recently. I think that to recreate this critical network, mission critical, yeah, it truly make is sense. mission critical, right? Like yeah. you, you can't recreate this or it would take a really, really long time. And I think that if you think about Buffett- How the hell would you get you know, financing? Who, who's going to finance you to do that? You're going to undercut everybody and ruin everyone's economics. No, I was thinking more from the perspective of imagine having to go out and aggregate sites yeah. one at a time, right? Yeah. Like how difficult who, is that to do? Yeah, how do you do it? Who do you deal with? Like yeah. why does yeah. anyone want to deal with you yeah. when they could just call up the big guys and get yep. what they need there? Yep. Exactly. And if you're... Verizon, like, why are you working with someone who could only cover maybe one square mile? Yeah, you wouldn't. When it's you a could, pain in your yeah, ass. You this the, is, the, I was I mean, having the, the same conversation with my buddy that works at a decent sized private equity fund. And he was saying, just structurally, he's one of the issues is if people leave here, mm -hmm. the question becomes how much of your returns were you versus how much was the fund giving you a platform to do the deals that you had. And when you're dealing with sovereigns or huge pension funds, like they're getting the doors getting beat down all the time by people trying to raise money from them. And the ability to take on that the amount of capital that they are looking to deploy and then also to deploy that capital in a, system, a systematic fashion and deliver returns. He's like, I just don't see a scenario where the big don't continue to get the majority of the flows. It just simply as a function of the amount of capital that's got to flow through them. You're talking about like the recipient being these big REITs or? Well, you... it can be a REIT. It can be, he was specifically talking about private equity, but you know, okay. I, I think, okay. I think that the thought can apply mm. in multiple different areas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this kind of brings back a really interesting conversation I had 10 years ago. And at the time, I published a piece of research and then I randomly get like an inbound phone call from, I guess you'd call it like a mini Berkshire Hathaway. Like, think of like an insurance company that's got a reputation as savvy allocators. 
And we talked for about a year about them seeding me for about $50 million and they want to scale up and launch a, a fund. And we sat down, I went home and over the course of a year, I looked at every, the ability to be able to deploy about a billion dollars of capital, right? And at the time, if you remember, interest rates were really low. And if you look at, if you look at the full, the re returns from 2013, 2014, it's pretty bad because the public markets are very good at discounting forward, right? The public markets are very good at taking all the inflation, the interest rates and discounting a lot of these REITs to perfection. And there was nothing that I could find at the time that could really like I couldn't buy any of these like big multifamily REITs and, and feel comfortable I was getting decent return. I think in hindsight, really, the only asset class that has proven to be able to absorb a lot of capital and done really well in the REIT space was warehouses, right? And and I have to give Blackstone credit for it because they identified the rise of e-commerce and they were buying, they were going to every private owner. And, and paying top dollars uh, for their warehouse portfolio. Everyone was questioning, were they, were they just doing it because they need the capital to work? But they quickly identified the warehouse, the trend in warehouses, right? But it was very difficult to put capital to work. And fast forward to today, we're having this conversation about these like large cap multifamily REITs. And literally, you could put a good amount of capital to work today in between the Prologis, the Mid-America Camden, even American Towers, which like I'm not an expert in Towers, right? That's one of the real estate categories that I'm less versed in, but there's a lot of capital. And we historically generate a lot of our returns by buying something that has a little bit of hair that's complicated, like an FRP Holdings or like a, more like a Griffin, which became Indus, which got bought out by GIC and Centerbridge, right? And usually we'll go in, we'll identify it. We think that the some of the parts is 80% higher than what the you know a pure play would trade at. And but they're actually doing things to streamline and simplify the operation, right? Like that historically has been how we generate our returns. And if you look at where the returns come from, it's identifying that they were trading a bit. A big discount, but they were also actively doing things to improve how shareholders could understand their business. And we really have to dig deep, like really have to do some really bespoke stuff versus today, like you could buy these large cap REITs. And when the market sentiment changes, this is where the capital is going to flow to first, right? And one reason why we, there are more optimistic stuff out there today where we could probably get higher absolute returns as more torque, but we're pounding table on the launch cap reads because when the market sentiment change, when people actually want to own these assets, this is the first asset class that they are going to want to own. And maybe I'm trying to get a little bit too cute. Like I know that you allocate to private deals as well. But I would just like suggest. I just people. I I had two earlier. I'm not like. Yeah. Uh, I just like those guys. They're operators, and yeah. I and I resonate with how that guy started his business. I like people that claw their way to to success, and I gave him some money. Mm. I'm not like a private <laughs> investor. That's not what this is. Well, yeah, it's great to see 
people. I got a young analyst who's working with me purely on the real estate side, and he loves doing these value add conversions. And one day I'm probably one day I'm gonna see him when he starts on the private side. Right now he's dedicated to the public side and he's doing a phenomenal job. But one day if you want to do private deals, like maybe that's how we kind of add a crossover public and private offering. But what I was going with was on the private side is that one way that like and we're getting a little cute, right? But I have these conversations with my investors. And you could get a one-two punch, like you get, you could potentially get two bites of the apple. And what I mean by this is, if you look at the stock chart, if you look at the stock chart, if you look at the GFC, the public side led on the way down, but it also led on the way up, right? The public were early to price, to reprice. And if you look at, but when it came, when it bottomed in 09 and it came back, like it, it was up like 300%, something crazy like that, right? In, in 09. But you could take, and you could talk to someone like a, right? Which I believe he was on your pod at one point. Who? You could still find Greenwall Capital. Did you? Oh, know Jason. No, yeah, Jason. I don't yeah. think I have. Okay. All right. That might've been Brendan below. So yeah. I might've gotten that. Mix up. It's okay. So, <laughs> sorry about that. I like Velo. I got I, no beef with that. I met Velo for the first time at the FRP Holdings. It was it's so great to meet people in person. It was great to see you in person in Chicago as well. That, yeah, that was, was fun. Awesome. Ian throws yeah. a solid group. Ian, shout out to Ian. Great event. That was a really, really good event. Met some really good people there. But going back to the two bites of the apple, if you look at how the public equity market trade. And again, this goes back to you own these private assets, you own them for a long time. No one's selling, right? On the way down, no one on the private side is going to sell. They're going to sell, they're forced to sell, right? But on the public side, public is going to discount things early, right? There's probably someone who says, well, rates are going to go up and maybe these rent increases starting to flatten out. Like, I'm going to get out, right? Because the next guy is going to figure this out, right? That is how the public markets work. And if you look at, like, last year, uh, when rates started to rise, like, right around Omaha, Berkshire weekend, a lot of these rates started cracking, right? Hmm. But nothing, everything was still really, really good on the private side. If you go back and look at the, the tweets of a lot of private Real estate GPs on Twitter, they were like, people were still saying, it's not a big deal, et cetera, et cetera. And the publics start selling off. And by kind of October of last year, a lot of the publics were down a good amount, right? And I suspect that on the way up, and rent growth was actually really strong last year. If you look at a lot of big public rates, rent growth were really strong last year. And I suspect that the publics are going to work before the private, right? Now we're on the uh, other yeah. side, right? Now, now there's like a lot of doom. No one thinks these are going to work. And I think when the public works, so if you allocate to the publics, it's probably going to work. And if you get really cute, you could potentially take your profit from the publics and allocate to your buddy on the private side again. Because I'm not those are that shit. I, it's a 10-year <laughs> lockup. You can't do that. But I think these are going to work. I think it's a harder question, do they outperform the market? Because I tend to be, I mean, especially small caps, yeah. I tend to be pretty bulled up on small caps right now. Yeah, there's some. So I just don't, uh, it's just a matter of, do they work better than other things? But I'm not sure that's even the question that people should be asking. 
where I should be, right? The more important question is, is this something I can actually truly own? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I usually use an 80, 20, 70, 30 rule, right? I want to own stuff where when I buy it, I generally feel like 70, 80% of my portfolio, when I buy it, I am like 95, 99% certain that I'm going to make money on it. And the question is, how much money do I make on it, right? And there's a lot of comfort in knowing and owning something in your portfolio where it's kind of like you coach your kids in football, right? So I am probably like the 0.1% of Asian Americans actually play football. And I play left tackle, which is like a very gritty, grindy, like very little uh, attention being paid. But the value that it adds to the team is rather high in the sense that they protect your blind side. They, they actually help you win games. And I have positions that I designate as the offensive line in the portfolio, right? Yeah. You you buy them there. It's not like Antonio Brown who winds up flaming out or some Mercutio wide receiver who may be a big win or a bust, right? Like you draft like a Joe Thomas – and you just put them to work. He's going to show up to work, every, you know, every day, and and they're going to do their job. And then what that does is like when you build out your offensive line, then you could go the rest of the portfolio. You could go for the torque elsewhere, right? And they can come back to you if cap rates stay at seven percent in the public markets. Like we're underwriting to a high single digit IR. Like that's a pretty draconian outcome. And we could still get to a high single digit IR. Like I, I think if we're in a forever seven percent multifamily cap rate world, there's probably a lot of other asset classes that are gonna get torched, right? Now, I think there definitely is an outcome where someone's really beaten down small caps, and we own some of that in the portfolio that are just absolute coil springs. Uh, I absolutely understand that. And we, we are hunting for them right now. But I, I think you could do both. And, and even, again, going back to the real estate example, there are names that are smaller that have, don't have the same low loan-to-value, that don't have the same maturity ladder, where I think there are potential three-baggers in total returns in the next, like, four years. So we're looking at that. We're going to track those more closely pay more attention to those. And we're not going to size them as big as the large caps with the pristine balance sheets. And like you could mix them up a little bit. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. I like to sometimes think about it. If you watch sports teams where they get like really fucked sometimes, like for a while is if you overpay for a superstar that doesn't turn out to be a superstar. So like you're underperforming. I mean, it's the same as a portfolio, right? If you allocate huge to something that doesn't work, that's how you get really screwed. Um, Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. paying steady performers makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you see this all the time, right? Like, heck, we go down rabbit hole, like taking a portfolio and comparing it to a football team. If you don't have you overpay for a superstar, then you don't have the cap space, you give away your draft picks. Yeah, like you, you, get, screwed. you get screwed for quite some time. Yeah. Absolutely. And generally, I think, I think for us, having an understanding of what our LPs could expect from us 
I think if you naturally run a real estate strategy, it's generally a strategy that helps you stay wealthy rather than just create these like outlier right tail events. And I think a lot of our LPs who do work with us, that is a lot of their approach, right? And you get these, and the focus is on protecting your downside. The focus is on beating inflation in the long run and having the purchasing power, right? And, but I don't think, I think if you naturally allocate to real estate with the exception of a 2009 general growth bankruptcy, you buy the equity and do a hundred bagger as much as I have beef with uh, Bill Ackman, I, I can recognize that that was a once in a decade trade, right? I mean, he, they did really, really well. And maybe hopefully I get an opportunity to do something like this in this cycle. Maybe, maybe there is something that gets where the equity essentially becomes like a bit of a co-option and I'll get, I'll call up, they file like a co-op Thomas Brizel, get on the equity committee and hopefully to find, you know, a, a 10, 20 or hundred bagger through restructuring. Yeah. Funny story. Brizel and I got to know each other years back when I had to file some form indicating my ownership in a bankrupt equity com company. And then he called me and we chatted for a few hours and like, we're looking to do that right now. And that's super interesting. And that's completely in, in the opposite spectrum, right? We're in that case, we're trying to find a Tom Brady in, in the later rounds of the draft, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of different ways you can generate good risk-adjusted returns, and that's a thing. I think what we're trying to do with pounding the table, and this is interesting because we reach out to one of our perhaps best LPs, and I was starting to pound the table, and I'm saying this is one of the best risk-adjusted returns, and at the time, we estimate the forward returns were 15%, right? But it was, which like, in a market sell it doesn't sound like the, the best opportunity out there. And I think I might reach out to you when I say, hey, Bill, I think these are starting to get really interesting. And, and that was kind of the general pricing at the time. And they've gotten a lot better since then. And I think that it was difficult for people to wrap their head around. Because if you break down where the returns come from investing in real estate, a lot of times it's because you're using more than 60% leverage, right? You're using more than 60% loan to value. And you, you're getting 15, 20% IRs because you're taking an elevated level of risk through repositioning and ground up development, but you're also using a lot of leverage, right? This is an asset class that naturally get its returns from leverage. Like here's some simple math, right? If you invest in a deal and use 70% loan to value, right? If you rate, if the asset were, was able to raise rents by 2%, the increase in your lever cash flow is actually 6%. So you don't need a lot of things to go well just by a tiny little bit with enough leverage. The returns to the equity is phenomenal, right? Now, the opposite is true. Leverage is a, is a double-edged sword, right? When things are good, it's really, really good. And I think that's why people rush in to buy some bill at 3.5% cap rate because the returns were so good for a little while. But when they go in the opposite direction, you can have very, very serious impairments in your capital. And I think where the large cap reads today, you take that left tail, right? You take that left tail 
from the equation. You remove it, I am 99% sure that these large cap weights are not going to experience a credit event. I don't know, man. It's interesting. That's it's, that's it, my take. Yes. Yes. It's it's interesting, and I'm like a little kid in a candy shop right now. This is You don't want me to tell you. I'll take that into consideration. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Mantis is in the room. I like Peter's idea down. So I can't say that I like anything. It's, it's the kiss of death. Do we want to maybe open up the room yeah, for man. some Q&A? Yeah, I got 15 say? minutes or so. Here, yeah, some, yeah. Zach's yeah. here. We'll add him as a speaker. Zach, go ahead, man. Hey, guys. Great to meet you. And thanks again, Bill, for putting on this space and for adding all this value. I'm a commercial real estate agent here in Houston, also a residential investor. But I wanted to learn a little bit more about your guys' background. Just This is my first introduction uh, to your guys' space, and I've learned a ton. Thanks again. I am a media personality. Uh, Zach, is that directed at my background or? Yes, please, please. Yeah, sure. Um, I run a um, partnership where we exclusively invest in the public side. I launched that in, I'm the founder and portfolio manager. I, I launched that in 2013. We run a value strategy. And what's different is half of our focus is in real estate. The other half is kind of generically uh, companies trading below private market value, uh, like a, kind of like a traditional Buffett style, uh, partnership style strategy. And we have a very heavy focus in public traded real estate. And prior to this, I worked at a private equity shop. And prior to that, from 06 to 09, I was at Citigroup doing sell side real estate investment banking. And that was a great learning experience because I went into City when everyone thought you couldn't lose money in real estate. And by the time they shut down my group at City, people thought that you were never going to make any money in real estate. So, <laughs> so I went through the whole cycle. And what was incredible, like a lot of the underwriting and risk management and kind of like pre-mortem on how I underwrite investment, I learned from that time period because I was getting well, like 10, 15 phone calls in 08, no, not in 08 of developers, GPs who were saying, my bank just stopped lending. They, they put a stop on this project, but I need to finish it otherwise. Or my bridge loan is maturing. I need an I need a capital injection. And I have to tell a lot of those people that I, we can't help you because we don't know if the banks are going to be around, right? We don't know if the banks themselves are going to be okay. Like there's, there is no equity injection capital out there. And what I did is I like took careful notes of all the ways that people fail in that time period. And I brought it with me to the public side so that I could underwrite to on the public side in terms of before that, I was a I was an HVAC engineer for a little while, but my family has also bought property here in New York. We bet the farm on our first uh, real estate property, and we parlay that into maybe a dozen of buildings here in Queens, New York. And then going back to the the public real estate side, we've been I've been tracking that space probably during my time as city. It sold a ton of failures, sold a ton of diluted equity offerings than the GFC. 
And then for the past 10 years, we've been looking for under the radar real estate companies on the public side has been very slim picking because interest rates been so low for the past decade that most of the large cap rates are trading with kind of price to perfection, right? So we really have to take a guerrilla tactic and, and really look for the things that are below the radar that didn't look like a pure play read. And that's what we specialize in. And Amazing. now is it, yeah, thank you. No, yeah, it sounds like a plethora of experiences that all blend together to give you uh, valuable insights into the market. I wanted to learn a little bit more. You mentioned at City, you were learning a ton about kind of these operators who got in over their heads and failed. I'm hoping that, could you share some of the insights that you learned? What were some of the trends that you saw and reasons why these guys were failing back in 2009? Sure. And I tweeted out and I joked that I'm going to become the Howard Marks, so REIT investing. Like that's a little bit of a joke, but I, but that's, it is something that I am trying to do is I am trying to write more memos talking about some of these topics, like short memos that could be easily digest, but I'll go through it. And, and I tweeted out before that I call it the four horsemen of real estate apocalypse, right? And it's generally around, I would say maturity is your, is a number one reason why real estate, people lose money in real estate. If you have, I think, bridge loans or just very short-term financing, short-term maturity is very often the reason why people uh, wind up permanently losing capital in their, in their real estate investments. If you go out and try to finance something, you see a deal that you like, you go out and, and you're trying to raise a capital couldn't raise the capital and, and you wind up going out and uh, getting some sort of bridge financing or mess financing or just some sort of financing where the maturity isn't five or 10 years out and everything is great. And then all of a sudden the market turns those, that's a very, very recurring theme of why people permanently lose their capital in the real estate business. The second one is using some sort of floating rate debt. Right. And I remember a lot of real estate GPs talking about why would you pay? Because for the last 10, 15 years, it's been the, the losing trade to lock in an interest rate. Like, yeah, just finance it with floating rate debt. You, you, you'll do better. Right. Well, you know, when I bought my first building, my financing cost was six and a quarter. And I just kept paying my mortgage and I did fine with it. But had I used a floating rate debt, things might not have turned out the same way. I think using floating rate debt is, I would just discourage people from using any sorts of floating rate debt. Now, it's different if you're an organization where you use floating rate debt, but you're like an FRP holder. Hey, can you guys hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Okay, sorry. Good air. There you go. My good air pod ran out of batteries. Oh, we're back to the the bad quality. Yeah, we're back to the bad quality AirPod, right? Uh, I'm charging the other AirPod, and Apple needs to make AirPods that have uh, four hours of uh, battery life, right? Um, so the floating rate debt, the the third one is just leverage, right? The amount of leverage that you put on a property. But these are very obvious. And the fourth one would be overpaying. And I call these the four pockets, but I would actually rank them. I would actually rank them with the maturity as like your number one risk. Now, obviously, like 
Mm-hmm. And when you say maturity, do you mean like maturity and experience in the business or, or age? No, debt maturity. You don't want to have a shitload of your debt come due at the same time at the wrong time. Yeah. Well, you don't so you want to space want it out. Short maturity. Yeah. You want to space it out. You don't want to get a 12 month bridge loan thinking that you could flip into long term financing. Those are usually. Or 24 months, right? You do 24 yeah. months in 2021 and look at you now. Yep. Yep. As a rule, when we invest on the public market side, if there's a big maturity in that within the next three years, we generally don't like to own those. Unless we could get like a really, really juicy 30, 40% IR on it. Mm. Why doesn't something like Mid America have like corporates that mature a lot further out? Do they just not do that in REIT world? Well, I mean, at some point, if you think about like the stuff that's maturing in 23 was probably taken out five years earlier or eight or 10 years earlier. So there's like a natural maturity right so you could potentially have a big chunk of maturity in 2030 right but at some point you do come upon 2030 so by definition mid-america when they ladder these they made it so that only a small amount matures every single year yeah no i'm not being critical of them i guess it's just odd that they have nothing after 2021 except for what looks like maybe it's a preferred or something they have a 2051 Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. I don't think they have a, mm-hmm. a two two and seven eighths twenty fifty one. Mm-hmm. Trades for fifty six. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back, if you don't mind, to an earlier sure. point you made in this talk. You mentioned how LPs aren't always protected in these deals, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about that. Like when you say they're not protected, what are some of the ways that they're not protected and you mentioned that you, with your company, you do things differently. Can you touch on like how you do things differently? Could you refresh my memory on what like, the LPs not being protected? What was the context of that? We've been doing the spaces for almost two and a half oh, hours. Okay, so. okay, got yeah. it. My understanding was just when structuring deals, and you're talking about pref returns, how those guys are like usually getting screwed. Maybe I was just not understanding well and. I view myself a lot as a student, so please excuse me if I ask something like silly. That that? I thought I asked about, I yeah, I talked about the Vernado preferreds, and we talked about how you get screwed oh, there, but I don't think okay, we said anything okay. about LPs. No, no, so so I think if we're talking about Vernado preferreds, that's actually, there's a big public office REIT that owns a lot of office buildings in New York City. And in addition to, so they have three classes of securities. One's a common, one's a preferred stock, and one's, you know, the bonds that you could buy. So you could buy any of the uh, uh, securities. And we were talking about the preferred stock, which is trading at $14 off a $25 par, paying about a 9% current dividend. And we were, this is not a private deal. This is a public traded company with public traded preferred securities. And it's common knowledge in the REIT world that when times get tough, the, the companies will find a way to screw over the preferred holders. And we were just walking through the gives and takes of why the preferreds are actually okay because the common holders will actually want dividend distribution 
in the future. And that was your best protection. So it's a, this has nothing to do with private LPs. This is a publicly traded security. And we were just, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I got it. I, I don't mean to. Oh yeah. You're welcome, Zach. I don't mean to be, uh, I didn't think it'd go this long. I actually have something to do here like now. So I got to drop. Okay. But, um, well, I got to You've got something too in like 20 minutes, yeah. I think. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for doing this. And I hope people learn something from it and we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. I mean, with, with where everything trade at, like this may be a recurring team going forward. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good one. Yep. See ya. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Yep. yep.